0: Church. Today's scripture is Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. into the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man now i was cutbearer to the king this is the word of the lord please be seated
1: good evening like I'm on the golf course. Good evening. (laughs) Appreciate it. Uh, Let me get settled in here. My notes and my Bible and my timer. Thank you, worship team. Uh, Thank you, Cody, for reading. Really appreciate it. Uh, The past few times I've preached, I've forgotten to introduce myself. Uh, My name is Marcus, and I am one of the pastors here at Redemption. And I am growing fond of you uh, people who have been here longer than I have. Uh, I've learned <laughs> to wear short sleeves. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a lifesaver, right, uh, to wear short sleeves. Uh, let me be quick to remind all of us here, and including myself, of something very serious. Um, what I'm gonna do in the next half hour I will be judged more strictly before God for Uh, James chapter 3 verse 1 says to us and any other preacher who occupies this this space that let not many people seek to be teachers but those who teach will be judged more strictly and some versions of the Bible says more harshly so um, the reason I I stand here is not because of any talent that I have but to obey and know that one day I will stand before God um, and be evaluated on what I'm doing right now. So if you would join me in that seriousness and let's get into the word of God, I would, uh, um, we can honor God in that way. So let us pray. Thank you, Father God, for these people. Thank you for the city of Tucson. Thank you for my brothers and sisters uh, in Christ under the Lord, uh, seeking to serve, seeking to understand, seeking to follow, seeking to shepherd seeking to move closer to you one day at a time. Lord, I pray for our service as we offer uh, just our meager talents gifts. um, Will you bless them? Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart the study during the weeks and the Holy Spirit um, all be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As Cody read uh, from the book of Nehemiah, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks you know that we've been in the book of john so we're taking a break from the book of john for the next nine weeks we'll pick john back up um, in the first week of um, august and for the next nine weeks through the summer we'll work through the book of nehemiah Um, so we will get back to john and when we do we will pick up i think in john chapter 12. so if you have your bibles Open them if you have your devices this morning uh, this morning, this evening or this morning will be in Nehemiah chapter one as Cody read from verses one to eleven. If you're there, say amen. 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 Appreciate it. All right, it's a six o'clock hour. Let's 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 get hyped in here. For much of the twentieth century, the latter half of the twentieth century, the United States, our country. Had an adversarial relationship with the USSR, what we know, what we used to know as the Soviet Union, what has now become Russia. Uh, when the, when world, War, world War II ended in 1945, us and the Soviets became the two world powers, the two superpowers in the world. And for the longest time, we competed almost in every category, about everything in this world. Uh, we competed, right? If, if they built a missile, we build two or we build missiles that could go further or that could bomb a bigger city. When it was a political race, it was a military race, it was an economic race, and those things, the, the far-reaching uh, hands of the United States or Russia or the Soviet Union were seen all over the world. They send a guy around the earth, we send, I don't know, four or five guys to the moon. Whatever they did, we could do better, and whatever we did, they wanted to do better, right? It is during that time that we started to understand what the world was like and the dangers of possibly coming under attack from the Soviets. So in October of 1962, President Kennedy is the president of the United States at this time. there was what we call now in history books the Cuban Missile Crisis, right where the russians actually brought some missiles or were seen or intelligence said they had brought some missiles to the island of cuba um in order to have a greater foothold on this hemisphere of the earth right so when they brought these missiles it was it it was an alert to the people in the united states that hey there is a possibility that the russians might attack us right a lot of americans who grew up in that in that era were under the the fear Of something possibly happening. Bomb drills happened in schools, etc., etc. Now, that was for 50 or so years. The passage that we're going to cover today talks about what the Israelites were going through for a period of about a thousand years, where they were subject to always an impending invasion by their neighbors, right? King David had died a long time. King David. Had ruled uh, Israel for a while and then after King David died the kingdom that God had created for his people split into two the northern kingdom in, in in the book of Kings and Chronicles was known as the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom was known as the king of Judah They were both Jewish kingdoms but they were separated now first came in 722 BC 722 years approximately before Christ the Assyrians one of the superpowers of the day invaded the northern kingdom and then the day fell off and they got overtaken by the babylonians and the babylonians also invaded the last group that invaded the israelites were a group called the medo persians in 586 when they invaded the difference between the assyrians the babylonians and the medo persians was that the assyrians and babylonians both took slaves and took people from israel when they captured an area that would take would take people back home they would take the best and the brightest to serve in their kingdom and it would take them back the medo persians didn't believe in slavery so it is in this time period that the book of nehemiah and ezra are written ezra and nehemiah are actually like a part one and a part two of three men trying to take the people who have been let go by the medo persians and not slaves to go back home and help rebuild the kingdom so this is the setting in which this book is written it's written approximately 500 years before christ right kind of in this thousand year period where empires were rising and destroying each other and the israelites are actually in exile they're not home they're uh, a vast majority of them are not home and they're wanting to go back home pick me up in verse four nehemiah actually verse one right nehemiah it says the son of hekeliah now it happened in the month of kislev He's a high official back in Medo, Persia. He gets word that back home, this is what's happening. The city is without walls, his hometown is, is desolate, and they're they're wanting, they're wanting they're wanting help to rebuild this thing. So Nehemiah says, by the way, Nehemiah is in, is, it says the month of Kislev, right? We don't have a month of Kislev right now. The month of Kislev is, if you, if you did the calendar, it's actually between November and December in this time of year. So uh, you can imagine it's cold. Nehemiah has a pity on his people because he's in a citadel. He's in the most fortified place in, 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 in middle persia being probably well-fed and well-taken care of, warm areas, and his people are back home. It's November, December, it's cold, and the walls are broken, and they're very vulnerable. So that's, that's the kind of the, the, the immediate context that he's writing out of. Right? So Nehemiah finds himself there. Verse 4 and 5 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I've titled this sermon today, this, this morning or evening, whenever you see this, is "God, oh, sorry, Come Back to God. Come back to God. Nehemiah starts this prayer. The prayer runs from verse 4 all the way to 11. And he starts to pray to the God of heaven. The God of heaven who hears our prayers and and, and he sees us. So Nehemiah puts a face and a a personification to God. See, there's a reason why he does this. When he says the God of heaven, before before in Israelite history, the people of Israel always prayed to the God of Israel. Because they looked around and saw all the other people that were around them, they all had a national God, if you understand what I'm saying. So the Edomites had their God, and they would pray to the God of Edom, or the God of Assyria, or the God of Babylon. But Nehemiah is creating a new concept of God in the people by telling them that God is not just the God of Israel or the God of Jerusalem. He is the God of heaven. He's the God over all. You understand what I'm saying? He's, he's bringing the people to a new concept of God. And he's saying, God has ears, and he's ha- he has eyes, and he can hear you. See, the, the identification, the identity of the people were, were, were relying on that God. They needed to go back to Jerusalem to worship God is what they thought. Like, we need to be back in the temple, back home, because God only hears us, quote, unquote, if we are in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is saying, no, we can pray from anywhere because God is the God of heaven. It's getting quiet. I appreciate noise when I'm preaching. Um, These kingdoms, when they invaded, they would take people with them and take them back and make them worship their God. So in this prayer, Nehemiah is calling his people. He said, you can always come back to God. You can come back to the God of, of heaven. He doesn't just reside in a temple, right? He personifies God. God answers prayer. So Nehemiah is calling his people back to God. And his aim is to bring people back to the God of heaven. And he starts the prayer with a confession. I want to spend some time in the confession. Verse 5 and 6. If, you, if you're there, I want you to go down and read with me so you know that I'm actually reading this thing. Okay? Verse 5. And I said, "Lord, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with Those who love him and keep his commandments. Then he goes on. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. I want you to hear this part. Hear it with me for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verses six and seven. Nehemiah is exploring something that we explore today. We're a little bit nervous about. The sin is not just personal, sin is also corporate. The sins we commit is not just personal. When we confess sin, as he's confessing, we can't just confess our own sin. It is sin's always corporate. So nehemiah does not use the first person singular word in hebrew he uses the first person plural word we sin is also social collective sin is expressed in actions and it's not abstract from from reality sometimes we talk about sin as it's something as, as something abstract but it's actually real the sin that we commit is actually it, it affects other people if you're with me say amen feel free feel free um if you're new to Christianity or you're new, or you're new to maybe the Bible or the Word, when we talk about confession, confession, as Nehemiah is doing it in this chapter, is actually agreeing with God that we have indeed done wrong. You're agreeing with God, agreeing with God in his evaluation of you. You're saying, God, the way that I don't measure up, the way you see me, that's the way I'm seeing myself, and I am sorry. You understand, right? He is—he 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 is, he is, he is, he is giving—even giving God permission. He's surrendering to God and saying, "God, I confess all of these things." See, prayer, prayer, and confession. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us, right? Nehemiah is confessing sins that he did not personally commit. Somebody said, mm, "I heard it." There we go. He is confessing sin that he didn't personally commit. Now, I always say this, and you guys got to hear me. I'm preaching to myself, but I'm in a room full of people, right? I hope I'm on your block right now. If I'm on your block, I hope I'm in your house, and I'm in your house, I hope my feet are on your couch, right? (laughs) I need you to hear me. I need you to be with me this morning, right? This is the time in the sermon when I start going and people start looking at their watch and getting nervous, right? But I'm with you in this. When I read this passage and I saw that he was not only confessing his own, his own sin, but he was confessing the historical sins of his people, I thought, oh, man, what, how am I going to say this? The question I have in my mind as I was preparing for this for weeks um, is, why confess sin that you didn't personally commit? Why, does Nehemiah, why is Nehemiah confessing the sins of the people of Israel, his household, me and my father's household, and then myself? Why is he doing that? I'm not smart enough to answer that question, so I had to go to further sources. Uh, theologian Millard Erickson, who is a prophet at Baylor University, Truett Seminary, gives, me, gives us so, some reasons why we ought to participate in this confession. I hope, you f- I hope you're feeling the weight right now because we're, we're, we're in it together, right? He says this. One, we are generally, as people, we are generally inclined to disregard sins that we didn't have an active choice in. If we don't have an active choice in the sin, we tend to disregard it, a, a policy that our city passes or our country has because we don't, we don't actively do anything to contribute or not contribute to that we we tend we tend to distance ourselves from that, right? Two, our membership in a group can color our perception of reality. Okay. Example of this is think of Marie Antoinette, um, in the French during the French Revolution, the people are hungry, they're revolting. They come to her, and and, and it's peop- the people are hungry, they need bread. They like, say, oh, the people don't have bread. You know what she tells them? She's so distant from the populace. She tells them, let them eat cake. How they gonna eat cake? don't have bread she's distant right third our involvement is less obvious when we are a member of a group when it, when it's a corporate sin when our involvement is less obvious when when it's in a group or is in past history in the fall of 2013 a few years ago I was a younger man more spry I would say and I was in my first year of seminary and I, I was in, in the Boston area and the Boston Red Sox uh, won the World Series. <laughs> the Baseball Championship of America. <laughs> Some of you guys missed that one. Uh, the World Series, they won the World Series. Um, my friends called me and said, hey, Marcus, forget to study let's go downtown Boston. People are, you know, cheering on the Red Sox and they won the World Series and we're there. Let's go. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. We get in the car, we pack up in the car, we go downtown Boston, 40 minutes, we get downtown. And kind of breaks loose. People start flipping cars and stuff starts happening. You know, when you're in a group, you, you can't control it, right? Can I take ownership of that? I didn't personally do it, but I'm in that group. What do I do? I didn't turn over cars. I'm I, I barely even follow baseball. Like, I'm just here to, to see what's going on. There I am. It's less obvious when we're a member of a group. I'll give you another example. Maybe this will bring it back to home. When you're sitting at a ball game, a basketball game, uh, baseball game, and people start booing, you start booing. You're booing some guy out there because you're in a crowd, you can boo him. You won't boo him face to face. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? When you're in a group, it's kind of distant. The the act is distant, right? Being in a group makes it very difficult for us to see corporate sin, to feel personally responsible, and to confess. The further removed we are from a sin, the less real it seems. And that situation gets even harder when it's historical. This makes it very difficult for us to see corporate and feel personally responsible to confess. We can get, as you probably are feeling right now, I, as I felt this week, um, overwhelmed by this. Right? You can choose to take this on alone. It's too heavy a burden for any of us to carry. Right? Some of you, I, I know when I was, when I was sitting there, I said, man, I'm going to have to say this on Saturday. And I'm sitting there thinking, here's what I, here's what I was thinking. It's not bad enough. I have to confess my sin. You want me to confess historical sins of everybody else that I don't know, something I didn't do, I had nothing I had nothing to do with. I can't do that. I can't. It's too heavy a burden. You want me to confess the sins of others, other people that I don't even know, Marcus. Please, right? If that's where you are right now, I have hope for you this evening, but not yet. Hang on. With God, sin is both individual and corporate. I can't say that enough. Corporate or group sin has often, usually often it takes a backseat to individual sin in our culture because corporate sin seems so entangling and so, and so, so far out of my reach. I can't do anything, right? It's easy to disengage from. You can, we can pick one of the two options. You can say, man, there's so much sin in the world. There's so, much, so many nonsense that's going on. I'm just going to disengage. I'm going to worry about me and God. I'm going to worry about the vertical beam on the cross. I'm not going to worry about the horizontal beam. I'm just going to worry about the me and God. Or you can take on all the weight and drive yourself into depression and anxiety and fear. I think of situations, when I get that way, I think of situations in our country. Problems are so big, I can't worry about, right? You, you, you take yourself and you say, man, there's homelessness, there's injustice there, right? There's joblessness, there's poverty, The education system, right? Foster care and adoption, prisons. You can just start naming the things. You think, like, I got to confess all of that because I live in a country that this is happening and I got to do all of that? How many of you sitting in this room have found out recently that unknowingly, we support or knowingly support a brand or a product. That on the back end what they're doing is not ethical. Am I on your block? I'm on somebody's block. <laughs> right? You wouldn't support these things you wouldn't support these things personally but corporately. You don't you feel like you don't have a choice of the shoes you wear the coffee you drink we put myself in there the computers we use even the neighborhoods we live in there's history the weight of those sins of the past can be overwhelming what can little me do i'm just one person This is not what Nehemiah is talking about. He's not talking about the present stuff that we think about, right? He's actually talking about, there's sin here. He's actually talking about historical sin. And that's even harder. Nehemiah is confessing a history of disobedience to God by the people of Israel, right? uh, The people of Israel, the kings were so wicked, they were sacrificing children to gods, not God. They were sacrificing, they were doing things that were so terribly sinful. And Nehemiah says, Man, even though I didn't commit these things personally, I must confess them to the Lord. He is a product of this. So he laments, he confesses in order to bring people, to bring his people back to God. I want you to stay with me with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a mediator, he is confessing sins that he didn't commit. Come back to God through confession. Many of us sitting here have never confessed the sins in our lineage. I'll tell you what we have done. We've taken credit and benefited from the blessings and the advantages of of our lineage. My feet on your couch yet? If you are saying to yourself right now, man, this is hard to take. I cannot carry all of this personally you're, you're, you're in this corner thinking what am I going to do let me suggest to you that if that's how you're feeling maybe you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ quite fully in this sense if you're here and you said <laughs> Marcus dude I came for good news this is church I, I need to have some good news You came to the right place because I got good news for you, right? Despite all the sin in the world, despite all these things that are happening, I'm going to show you what the gospel does when we confess. The Church of America, which I am a firm member and proud member of, has not always done things right. And sometimes we don't get ahead of things. Right. Other institutions, other places, tend to step into these places. May, they may not call it confession. They may apologize. Some of you read the story of the Nation of can- Canada recently where they found 200 or so bodies of kids in, in an indigenous school that they had killed over years ago, 50 or so years ago, some as young as three. Their prime minister got up and, and apologized for that. The church can be ahead of that. We can be a part of corporate confession. that seems distant, let me break it down a little bit more and let me make it even more personal. I was sitting at coffee the other day with a member of the church and they said, man, every time you start talking, you're like, you're so close to tears. I, I, I can't explain why, but I'm going to tell you a story. I spent some time confessing some sins that I didn't commit, but I needed to commit, that I needed to confess. My father, you've heard this story before, my father worked closely with the dictator of a country, a, a, a government that oppressed a certain tribe of people in my country. I, being the son of the assistant director of the secret service of the country, benefited. I know this is a buzzword, but I was privileged to have a private school education based on my dad's position. My dad reluctantly held this job, but his government, Oppress people. I didn't have anything to do with it. Let me tell you how privileged I was. I'll give you an example. I was a sixth grader. One day I went into school, and I got some new pants. In Africa, everything's where You have to be, you know, nobody steps out of line. Individuality is very non-existent. <laughs> so I had some pleats on the pants. This is <laughs> late '80s, okay? <laughs> I had some pleats on the front of the pants, and I was too show-offish, whatever. So my teachers pulled me out, and said. I pulled a couple of my friends out, said this is too stylish, you can't have no pleats on your pants. This is not this is not uniform. So you guys need to go home. They sent us home. Me, I told my friends that we're not gonna go home, because I, I know somebody. I walked from my school, which is not that far, to the executive mansion of Liberia, which is the White House of Liberia, where my dad worked. And I went to the gates and I told the soldiers who were manning that place, which I mean And I told him, I said, my name is Marcus Doe. My dad works upstairs. Oh yeah, go ahead, you know, that's privilege. I went upstairs and I got my dad. My dad went back to the school and I got back in school. I benefited from that, you understand? I could walk anywhere in Liberia when I mentioned my last name, because we had the same last name as the dictator and people thought my dad was the president. So I could walk anywhere and say my name is X, Y, and Z and I I got open whatever I wanted. That same government, the privilege. I had to confess that. You see, you see what I'm saying? Years and years of privilege. Confession is a way to engage the feelings of aloofness and helplessness in a world filled with sin. That's how we get that's how we get connected, right? The history of sin, the product of sin, let me welcome you into a world of Humble confession before the Lord. Confession, like I said in the beginning, is agreeing with God that what we, we have done or benefited from, indeed, is wrong. And we're agreeing with God in his, uh, in, in his evaluation of us. Let me remind you that none of us here can cast a stone in the past at, at any sinner. I see people doing that kind of stuff now. But well, we can confess our having benefited or participated in some form of social or, or corporate sin. Come back to God. Coming back to God, as Nehemiah is showing us, requires confession, both individual and corporate, regular confession. See, when we confess, we can step into God's presence and be reminded of his promises, his faithfulness, and his just ability to forgive us. You don't have to carry corporate sin or historical sin. You can bring those things to the foot of the cross. Our shoulders weren't made to carry those things. It's not something to carry around in shame. It is something to lay at the foot of Jesus Christ like everything else. God gives us the promises. He says, to, as, as Nehemiah prays, he said, God, I need you to remember your people. Um, and I'm their mediator, I have confessed. But here are the promises that you promise your people, and I need you to remember it. Verse 8 and 9, he says this. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them back to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. God made a promise, a covenant with the people of Israel way back in exodus chapter 19 to 23 and then it's repeated again in deuteronomy 28 is a conditional covenant god says if you do this i will do this for you but if you don't do this this is what will happen to you so god says if you obey the commands of these laws I will take care of you. I will even keep you as a people. You will flourish amongst your neighbors. But if you choose to walk away from me, you will be scattered amongst the nations. Your children will be taken into slavery. And that's exactly what just happened, right? As human beings, the the nation of Israel disobeyed God, even though God gave them a a commandment. See, we don't like living by God's laws because we think laws are, are, are not out of love, but they are. If you're over 18, I know all of us here are, got you. Um, <laughs> you. I need you to hear this, right? We human beings will, will, will do things and say, oh, you know, our parents will warn us, you know, our parents will warn me. Oh, make sure you lock the door. Or, you know, when I came to the States, they would say, oh, make sure you wear a jacket in the winter or if you're here in Tucson, make sure you take sunscreen or water bottles out in the summertime, right? And you think, oh, I'm not going to listen to that. <laughs> parents have all these rules. It's not out of, it's not out of, out of hate, or have any kind of regularity? They're looking out for you because they have a bigger picture. If your parents can do that, what more than God, who created heavens and earth, who knows us, any who knows us beyond ourselves? Right? He's not giving us laws. Your parents are trying to save you from dehydration and skin cancer or hypothermia, all those kind of things. And we think, oh, i not give me rules. I'm not going to do that. God's laws are out of love. In fact, God calls the covenant nehemiah points him back to the covenant he doesn't call it the covenant he calls it the covenant of love to those who love him and obey his commandments as nehemiah closes this so he he's prayed he's personified god and gave god a face and ears and eyes to see us He's confessed on behalf of his people, and now he's, he's getting to a place. He reminds God of his covenant with his people. He said, God, you're going to take care of us if we do this. And I'm pleading to you. Your people are scattered around the world. Can you bring us back? As he closes his prayer, he reiterates his personification of God in verse 11. He says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give and give us success to, the, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And there's a, there's a last sentence that just kind of hangs out in every Bible. doesn't really have a verse attached to it. It just says, now I was cupbearer to the king. I'm going to spend my last few minutes in that sentence. Because nothing is written in the Bible for no reason. Now I'm cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? As we look back, now that we have the full Bible, when we look back to the book of Nehemiah, having knowledge of the New Testament, we understand what Nehemiah is saying. Let me explain it explicitly. Nehemiah is saying, I am the cupbearer to the king. This man is referring to the king. So Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, we don't have cupbearers these days, right, is the mo- one of the most important people to the king of Medo-Persia. He is a migrant or a refugee from another and in exile, and he's risen up to be almost a right-hand man of the king. I need you to stay with me. Nehemiah is bringing us into this story in a book of Nehemiah using a stylistic device, right, a literary style that is called foreshadowing. If you read a book, sometimes you get a little hint of what's coming next, right? In this book of Nehemiah, he's giving you, in this prayer, he's giving you a little hint. Now, the the theologians always go back and forth. Did he know he was actually doing this? Or is it a sovereign God that's actually writing this? I believe the sovereign God that is writing this book through Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is going about his life and praying to God. But he doesn't understand that the the next chapter is still coming. And it's such a beautiful chapter. You guys ready to get to the good part of this thing? Right? Who is Nehemiah? Who does he represent? Nehemiah is a man who cares about the people. If you sat in any Sunday school class ever in your life, when we talk Nehemiah, what do we talk? Building of what? This entire chapter one is not a mention of a wall. He's talking about the people. He addresses the people before he addresses the project. Okay? No mention of the wall, but lots of mention of the people. Lots of mentions of the covenant. Lots of mentions of confession. Nehemiah is a great foreshadowing of who is to come, the Messiah. Nehemiah is a great foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who is to come. Let's me let, me, let let's connect this real quick, right? The, Nehemiah, the, the Messiah who cares for his people enough to leave his heavenly dwelling place. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you, Nehemiah was in the citadel, the most fortified place, the most caring, warm place, right? And he's endeavoring to God to leave and go and rebuild. Jesus left heaven to come to earth, to an exiled people, to rebuild. You, oh man, you're not feeling this right now? Nehemiah is in a citadel, a place of protection and power. He leaves the citadel to go and rebuild, right? Jesus leaves heaven to take on our sins. Nehemiah is at the right hand of God. I'm sorry, Nehemiah is at the right hand of the king as the cupbearer. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Nehemiah confesses the sins of the people. Jesus comes and takes on the sins of all of us. Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven and personifies him and calling him to be a God in flesh. Jesus comes from heaven as God in flesh. Man, somebody's got to say amen. amen. See, the, the Nehemiah is such a great, the, the prayer is such a great foreshadowing of what's to come. He is sacrificing, he's telling us that, man, there's someone else coming, because this book of Nehemiah ends kind of abruptly, right? There's, there, there's, there's a, somebody coming who's going to do this better than I will. Who's going to rebuild? Who's going who's to build a wall better than I will? Who's going to build a kingdom better than I ever could? This prayer actually takes us back and reminds us that in the book of uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed the commands of God, God exiled them in the garden. Remember that. They're in exile. But it also points us forward to the future restoration of God's people to himself and and, and in the new Jerusalem where we'll be united with God, right? Um, We'll no longer be in exile. we'll, we'll We'll be brought together in the book of Revelation with God. Jesus has gone before us, he talks about in John 14, to create a place, to prepare a place to welcome us back to the Father. As Nehemiah leaves, the citadel and goes, there are people who are left back in in exile that will come because he's going to prepare a place. Jesus, like Nehemiah, has left the citadel and he has gone before us. I don't know where you are today. If you feel far from God today, if you feel the weight of having to confess corporate sin, The gospel is here to tell you Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is it is a sinful world. There's so many historical, personal, corporate, all these sinful things. You don't have to carry it. You can leave it at the foot of the cross. It doesn't have to feel overwhelming and helpless. Jesus took on our sins. He took on my sins. He took on your sins. He took on our sins. The great news of Jesus Christ says this. You don't have to carry the guilt and shame of historical sins on your own shoulders. This is why when people hear corporate sin, they get nervous. Because they tend to individualize it. Sometimes our our individualism won't allow us to see beyond ourselves. We confess our sins at the foot of the cross. We were not made to carry corporate sin, historical. So next time someone tells you, man, this so-and-so committed this, so-and-so this, and say, yeah, I confess that. I understand it's going on. But the good news of Jesus Christ says, I can live in freedom. I can help and make this thing better. But I don't have to carry that guilt and shame. If you try to carry that guilt and shame, what you are really saying is that Jesus died for everybody else and not for me. That ain't true, folks. It's not true. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, "Having having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. You don't have to stay in exile. You can come back to God. He's the only one that can carry the weight, that can bear the weight of individual and corporate sin. Understand this fully, that there is corporate sin in the world, but we can't carry it individually. We can acknowledge it, but we lay it down at the foot of the cross. We come back to God. God is good, and His mercy endures forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you want to start walking towards God, you start with confessing. And you move and remind him of his promises. And you take those promises on. You don't take on corporate sin. Let us pray. Thank you, Father God. For your mercies never fail. And they are new every single morning. May we rest. And know that, yes, there's corporate sin. There's sin all over the world. It doesn't mean we just disengage or we burden ourselves with it. We bring it to you. We pray to you. We confess to you. We work to make things better, but we don't carry it and we don't ignore it. Lord, I pray that this sermon will sink in to my heart, to our hearts, and into our city. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.